Hello, welcome to Ignorance. I'm Stuart Feierstein at Columbia University. And I'm Leslie Vosshall at Rockefeller University. In this podcast, we actually view ignorance as a great thing because that's what drives science forward. Instead of talking about the facts, we've asked scientists to come on and talk about what they don't know, what interests them, what makes them get to the lab early every morning and stay late every night. Leslie, I'm really excited about our guest for this episode in particular. Absolutely, Stuart. We are so excited to be welcoming Ishmael Abdus Sabor, formerly of the University of Pennsylvania and now recruited to Columbia University. Today, we're going to be talking about something that we are all familiar with, pain. Surprisingly, pain is one of the most enigmatic and least understood phenomena in science. Today's guest, Ishmael, is one of the world's leading researchers in pain and is here today to share his ignorance. Ishmael, we're so happy to have you here today. Sure. I'm quite excited to be here with you all on this podcast. So let's get going. How did you get started in the field of pain? Yeah, I think I was most interested in moving into pain neuroscience because of the sheer degree of ignorance we have in this field. Pain is something that, that's very personal and, and, and we all experience it in different ways. It's, it's highly subjective, but I was interested in, in thinking about and exploring how we could understand pain in a more objective fashion. I've always been drawn to problems where there are more questions than answers. And pain is just uh, infinitely mysterious. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to describe, it's hard to articulate, you could be standing next to someone in excruciating pain and never know it. You know, how the nervous system encodes this foundational sensation just really intrigued me. And if you consider all of our five major senses, pain and, and somatal sensation, touch, pain, temperature, itch, they're all kind of linked together in this world of bodily sensations. It's just the least understood of our five major senses. And for me as a scientist, I'm just drawn again, you know, where where the places where there's still room to make major foundational discoveries. I think some scientists are, are drawn to fields that are crowded and where there's a, a canon already established because there potentially you have the opportunity to really solve a problem at extreme depth and detail. But for me, I like to get in on the ground floor problems. And that's what drove me to pain neuroscience. And I mean, you had your choice. If you look at the people who are studying pain, some people take like a hot needle and probe a nematode, like a worm to see if it crawls away. Other people are asking humans in fMRI experiments, you know, how much does this hurt on a scale of one to 10? So you've taken the middle path between poking worms with like a hot poker and asking people about their subjective experience. So you work in rodents. So maybe walk us through your choice of your animal, like what can you understand about pain in rodents and what can't you understand? You get at a really important question about if you're going to use the mouse to study pain, what can you learn and what, what can you not learn? You know, as we, as we celebrate the advantages of our favorite model systems, we also have to keep in mind that the limitations and how far one experimental system could, could take us to addressing the problem we care about. Pain is, is very mysterious. There's physical pain, there's emotional forms of pain where people suffer and you, you can't readily identify a lesion in the, in the nervous system, but the, the person is experiencing deep pain. How could we 
even begin to, to measure or model this in a mouse. Very challenging. Something else that some mouse researchers are starting to think about these days in relation to pain that we see clinically, but it's hard to measure in, in the mouse, it's this idea of the placebo effect. So placebo effect is super strong when it comes to pain. And in fact, the placebo effect has really held us back as a field in identifying new pain therapeutics because to get a new drug to market, you have to show an effect above placebo. But placebo for pain is already so strong that most drugs are doomed to fail because they can't beat placebo. And I, I just want to jump in. So I think most people know what the placebo effect is, but maybe you could just tell like person on the street, what is it? Especially when it comes to pain. Yeah. So the placebo effect, and, and, and especially in relation to pain, is this idea that one can almost uh, trick the nervous system, the brain, to, to believing that a drug will provide certain benefits. So there are studies you can do in the humans. It's pretty interesting. If, if you tell a patient that's suffering from chronic pain, chronic neuropathic pain, and you tell them, hey, look, I have this new medication, and it's very expensive, the demand is high, but the supply is, is low. You know, but fortunately, today's your lucky day. I have a dose of this medicine that I, I can give to you. And everyone who's taken it says it deeply relieves their pain. And you give this person this expectation that this thing is going to work. It's magical. Everyone wants it. Few people can get it. You give it to them. And they, they do report, you know, it being analgesic, re relieving of their pain. And you can go the opposite way. You tell a patient, got this new pain drug. You know, I hate to inform you, but this thing is pretty crappy. Everyone who takes it says, doesn't really uh, relieve the pain, you know, but you're out of options. So why not try this? The person goes in with the expectation that this won't work. And lo and behold, they say, you're right, doc. It doesn't work. And it could be the same drug you're giving to different groups of people. It is a major effect. And, and we do know now from some studies that this placebo effect does have a neurobiological basis. It can recruit or engage our endogenous opioid system, our descending pain inhibition system. We have systems in our brain that act really potently to silence pain that's coming up through the peripheral systems, and it engages that system. You can block the placebo effect by antagonizing or blocking the opiate system. So it's not magic. It has some biology. But then when you get back to the question we let with about the mouse, how could one even study placebo effect in a mouse? How could you trick a mouse to, to tell them that this drug is really going to work on you, little guy? <laughs> it's, it's something we care about deeply, but I don't know we can study that so well in a mouse. I've always said that I prefer the placebo to the real drug because it has all the benefits and fewer of the side effects, you know. <laughs> it's remarkably powerful. Exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm irresistibly drawn to ask this question. Independent of culture, if you have a husband and a wife... 100% the wife will say, my husband needs to be coddled. My husband, like the same pain, my husband's on the ground crying. Women, you know, because we have to go through childbirth. Is there anything to this sex difference? Yeah, it's something us pain neuroscientists think a lot about. That reality that you just mentioned is something that people report, and we know it's true. You know, women have babies, which is intensely painful, right? And, and people always say, there's no way a man could have a baby. But the flip side of this is if you look at 
the clinical reports of pain, women are twice as likely to report suffering from chronic pain. Interesting. And their chronic pain disorders like fibromyalgia, for example, which is this body-wide muscle pain, women are two or three times as likely to suffer from fibromyalgia. So we have this interesting dichotomy and, and maybe a counterintuitive dichotomy in that our lived experience tells us that women probably have higher pain thresholds or tolerance, but the data report that they're suffering from pain a lot more than men. So then how do you explain that? One idea is that women are just more comfortable with reporting their, their pain, whereas men, they may suffer but not be as likely to tell the doctor how much pain they're in because maybe they see it as a sign of weakness. So they, they under-report their pain and maybe women over-report and maybe that shapes some of our clinical findings. Here is where the, the mouse actually can be useful. Male and female mice, you know, they can't self-report and have these biases that we have in humans. So maybe we have a way to get at sex differences and pain sensation that is devoid of our cultural gender biases with pain. And there the jury is still out if you look at sex differences in pain and rodents. Um, and, and maybe this, this can will tie into some of the work that we do in my lab because the data are quite messy and all over the place. Some studies show male mice have more pain. Some studies show female mice have more pain. Some studies show no differences. It's quite perplexing and, and the jury's still out. You had this paper that I saw, this fascinating paper that speaks to sex-specific differences. So this experiment, dad has taken a lot of opiates. And then you look at the sons or daughters, and there's this inherited effect selectively in the sons. I found that to be an absolutely fascinating result that speaks to sex differences, but also, you know, that it goes through generations. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question. We have the observation now, and we don't have the mechanism. <laughs> you know, we're, we're searching for that mechanism. but Ignorance. It, yeah, ignorance, ignorance you know. Just to bring the, the listeners in a little bit to these studies, we were interested in exploring sensitivity to, to opioids like morphine. Perhaps a person's usage of opioids to treat pain could be influenced by how often their parents use opioids. It has an important clinical consequence and context, especially in relation to the current opioid epidemic that we're experiencing for treatment of chronic pain. We still don't know why some people are more or less sensitive to opioids, why some people are more or less likely to become addicted to opioids. And one idea could be that their parents' usage of opioids is somehow influencing them in unknown ways. So to test this, we, we took fathers and we gave them, we basically got them hooked on, on opioids for about two months and they were able to self-administer the opioids. And, and this is something rodents like. So kind of like <laughs> reminiscent of, of addiction, you can have a, a rodent who, got, who gets hooked on opioids. So we did this to fathers. Then we had them mate with females, rats, that were naive to opioids. And then the dad was out of the picture. The only thing dad did was mate with mom, and then dad is gone. Okay, so mom gives birth to these offspring, They've never experienced opioids. They've never seen another rat suffer from opioid addiction. And then we just say, what is their relationship to opioid sensitivity as, as they grow up? And we see that the male offspring are actually more sensitive to the effects of morphine. 
So we see that the male offspring that are sired from dads that were addicted to opioids, they have a different relationship in adulthood with, with opioids. Those offspring also, they have behaviors to show that they're craving opioids as well. That's so important, right? That father's addiction begets uh, the son's addiction. It's ter terrifying. Yes. And now for us, the, the holy grail, the, the slam dunk is if we could find what that factor is. We are predicting that there's some molecule, some gene, some RNA, small RNA perhaps, in the sperm that's being deposited and inherited by the son specifically that's driving this effect. So you think it's more that than, say, an epigenetic effect? That is something that changes in the father's genes that's passed on? Or, or it could be epigenetic as well. Yeah, I think both of those are, are on the table for sure. This is a crazy experiment, but, but it's more of an example than anything else. So if you were to take male rodent sperm and treat it with opioids, bathe them in opioids. I had exactly the same idea. <laughs> and then artificially inseminate the females. What do you think would happen? Stuart and I are both weird. <laughs> that, that, that's a wonderful experiment. We should try it. <laughs> Got to convince one of the grad students or postdocs to give it a, give it a shot. <laughs> You know, sometimes, as, as you all know, as elite scientists, you, you, got, you got to do the wild experiment, the crazy experiment. <laughs> just crazy enough. Just crazy enough. Yep, yep. You're very creative, and you're pushing the boundaries of how people look at pain. And I was struck by how technology-forward your lab is. My impression is that the, the traditional way that you ask a a mouse or a rat if, if it hurts is you have a you you make it walk on something hot and and just like the kid touching the stove they withdraw their paw right the other is you poke them with metal wires that are first like gentle touch and then they're stiffer and stiffer and stiffer it seems to me like you've you've gone way beyond that poking them with sticks and and a hot hot stove so tell us a little bit about how you approach this that's kind of the main thing I'm known for in my relatively junior career in the pain field is, is, is developing these technologies and tools to more objectively assess pain. And I think this was all driven from my ignorance. As a postdoc, I wanted to study pain neuroscience, but I'm coming from the background of, of being a worm geneticist. And I've never done animal behavior in rodents or, or anything related to pain. And the postdoc lab, their focus was more on developmental neuroscience, not so much behavior. So it was kind of like the blind leading the blind. Pain is so like, it's very subjective, inherently and hard to describe that we just have this rather crude measurement that the majority of the field is relying upon. And moreover, if that's the case, you're just poking an animal with something. And if they respond, yes or no, that's how you determine their pain state. And you can apply an innocuous, something non-painful to an animal, a rodent, and they move their paw just as often. So if you have one singular readout and the animal does this at the same frequency with something painful or not, how are you confident about what they're experiencing? I had a number of ideas. One, you could just come up with an entirely new pain test, right? But the idea we settled upon was, all right, the field is in love with this one sort of assay, 50 plus years of this assay being dominant in the field. Can we make some relatively simple innovations to improve how much value we can extract from these assays? So these assays in the rodents are, are reflexive, meaning they occur on really rapid timescales. Because of this, it can be hard to appreciate much with the unaided eye. 
So what we decided to use was a uh, high speed videography video record these animals at 2000 frames per second. So essentially taking 2000 snapshots per second, playing this back in slow motion. And when we began to do this, we said, wait a minute, there's a lot of things this animal is doing even within one to two seconds after they receive a stimulus, then just yes, no, the animal responded. And lo and behold, there are all these behavioral signatures that you see associated with painful versus non-painful stimuli. And one of the things we've been doing over the years is now we began by just mapping these things by hand, but now we're using artificial intelligence, deep learning tools to extract these features that we see that really define a painful experience. And maybe you could give us some examples, like, do they say, like, they make a grimace with their face or they shake their paw? Like, what, what, what are the it's, features? It, it, exactly. The, the, you know, we like to say the eyes never lie. The eyes and facial expressions are so important in pain. Actually, all mammals that have been studied from, uh, from horses, goats, sheep, ferrets, humans, obviously, uh, you name it. Every single mammal that's been studied, when they're in pain, they grimace, they wince with their eyes. We actually don't know why we do that. A hypothesis is that it's a way for species to communicate with one another. Like, I'm in pain and maybe you want to escape from this environment or you'll be next to be in pain is, is one idea. But the facial features are so important. This is one thing we capture. Shaking of the paw, uh, jumping to pain. Um, how you put your paw back to the surface after you've encountered a stimulus is something that we see is really important. Whether the animal puts its paw right back to the surface or whether they kind of hold it in the air a little bit and guard it. Another feature we see is this whole body orientation. So if you touch an animal's paw with something that's innocuous, they tend to turn first to look to see what is that that just touched me before they withdraw their paw. Whereas if it's painful, they almost always withdraw their paw first before they turn and look. Their, their neural circuits are focused on escape before being inquisitive, but the exact opposite is true with something innocuous. That's something we could not have picked out without using our approaches because these decisions are sometimes occurring on the, the scale of 30 to 40 milliseconds very rapidly, but the nervous system isn't computing these things over and over again because these are neural circuits for survival. There's a question that pain neuroscientists always get. So people ask me, can flies feel pain? Can worms feel pain? Or can this lobster that I boil, does it feel pain as it's dying? Should I feel bad about boiling my lobsters alive? Some people say they don't feel pain. What do you think? And th this is something that we talk a lot about. My stance, and I think a predominant stance amongst pain neuroscientists that may not be shared by the general public, is that you need a brain to feel pain. Nociception is the sensation of pain. It's encoded by the pain sensory neurons. But this in and of itself is not pain. It may not have inherent meaning to an animal. The pain is going to be driven by circuits in the brain. They make sense of that sensation and tell an organism, you should hurt. This doesn't feel good. You have this um, unpleasant feeling. So a worm has nociception. A lobster has nociception. They have sensory neurons that respond to noxious stimuli, but that unpleasant emotional feeling that's associated with it, they don't have defined brain circuits. So in that context, we would say they feel nociception and not pain. 
you shouldn't feel bad about boiling your lobster. <laughs> it's a huge relief because I'm really in the mood for some lobster mac and cheese. So thank you. <laughs> Pain is one of those funny sensations that, that it's actually hard to remember in detail. I mean, you can remember that it hurts to put your hand on a stove and you won't do it a second time in some very Pavlovian way. But like, I mean, we talked about pregnancy and, and, and giving birth with, with women, yet they go back and do it again, which I've never been able to figure out. <laughs> but, but the claim often is, well, you don't really exactly remember it. And I have to say that's true for me too. I mean, I've had surgery and pain from it, and I'll go back and do it. I go to the dentist again and again, even though it's very painful usually. But I can't really recall that pain in, an, in detail, at least. I just know it will be painful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful question. We do have the ability to remember pain and painful scenarios and painful places, but maybe we also have the ability to, to block that pain by descending mechanisms in the brain that, that we em employ. So you can do experiments in rodents. There are some cool papers from Jeff Mogul's lab in the last few years looking at this where you can have an, a rodent in a painful environment chamber where they receive some some noxious information, painful stimuli, chronic pain. And then you just ask, does the animal have any memory of being in this context? And, and the answer is yes. They change their behavior in a way that they can remember that the last time I was in this environment, I was in a lot of pain. Even if you're no longer inducing pain in that environment, if they have enough time, they can make the association that something about this context reminds me of that pain that I had a few days ago. And now they'll have heightened painful responses. There's an expectation that this is going to hurt. That's certainly the way I feel entering the dentist's office. There's no question that it's <laughs> my anxiety level is high, but I don't really remember the quality of the pain. Do you, do you know what I mean exactly? It's a, I just don't have a sense. I can't really, right now, I can't sit here and I can say, oh, I don't really want to go to the dentist, but I can't really bring back the you know the yeah it's it's a it, it, it's a wonderful question the features of those painful stimuli how it felt how it was delivered you can't play back those memories like you could a scent that you enjoy you can really define the features the individual molecules that you thought were active in that scent a concert or a song that i heard something like that comes back quite easily yeah yeah that, that that's a that's a wonderful idea yeah there's ignorance you you, you stumped me that, that, that's uh <laughs> okay we're done here <laughs> okay because we were talking about the dentist and so i noticed ish that you have a model for dental pain for me by far the worst pain i've ever felt is dental pain so, uh, and I don't know if that's, if that's my lived experience, if that's common. And do, do you have a mouse model for dental pain? Yes. And you are right. Over the years, the, the data are, are overwhelmingly clear. The worst form of pain is dental pain, tooth pain. Consistently, women will say this was way more excruciating than childbirth. It's, it's always number one by far. Why that is, is still slightly mysterious. I, I can speculate on some, some leading ideas. But because it's so important, and, and another thing related to this that some people don't know, with the, uh, the, the opioid epidemic, dentists were actually leading that epidemic more so than medical doctors. Interesting. 
there's a huge unmet need to, to understand more about the neurobiology of tooth pain. So how do you study this in a mouse? That the easiest thing people do in rodents is just to make a small hole in the tooth, to just expose it to the outside environment. And then you let food and other molecules get in. It causes local inflammation, causes intense pain. And, you know, since we have a good ways of, of studying pain in rodents, we figure we can do this tooth pain in mice as well. The biggest feature we see when we induce tooth pain in rodents is facial grimacing. Their face is just in really intense pain that, that we can pick up using videography. So we have a model to induce tooth pain. I'll, I'll tell you, we're using it less and less these days because it's very tough to study the teeth in a rodent. They don't have as many teeth as we have, and it's just a very inaccessible structure. So I mentioned, like, we're interested in finding, like, what are the genes and what are the neurons that are driving pain so that perhaps we can find new ways to target it. Mouse dentistry, mouse dentistry. Mouse dentistry. So for these studies, we have some endodontic residents from Penn Dental School that have been doing research in my lab with researchers in my lab, and they bring all their tools from the dental clinic to, to the mouse. And we have, you know, these dental drills and it looks like the, the mice are going to the dentist. Yeah, we're delivering viruses and different tools to, to activate neurons and inactivate neurons. We put these, these um, receptors to do chemogenetics in the mouse tooth. Those studies are ongoing, but very challenging. Sometimes I feel like my lab is spread too thin because we're just trying to do so many things. Well, there's so much to do, so little time, you know. One of, one of the places, by the way, that would be interesting to look at that is a veterinary dentistry in zoos is a mm -hmm. very, very important area yeah. because zoo animals, well, wild animals in general, presumably suffer from a tremendous amount of dental pain yeah. because, I mean, they don't brush their teeth right, and right. things like that, right? Exactly. So, and often when animals are brought in from the wild into a zoo thing, the first thing they look at is their teeth and they're just a wreck. Yep. And you think yep. this animal must be suffering terribly. Yep. But as you know, wild animals in particular tend to be far more stoic mm -hmm. and, and, and won't show the pain because it makes them a target for a predator or something of that nature. Right, right, so right. Yeah. I'm always amazed, I have to say, and I know you've had this experience too, uh, Leslie, maybe you not, but, but if you do surgery on a mouse or a rat, as soon as they come out of the anesthesia, they're up and moving around. Whereas if you go to the hospital or you have surgery yourself, it's like three days in bed. Leave me alone. I'm not moving. Bring me everything. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm always surprised at how hardy the animals are. And you're right. They just pop, pop right up. I mean, we've learned that you have to give them additional anesthesia to keep them out longer just so they won't injure themselves by jumping up after, too soon after a surgical procedure. Yeah, that's true. While we're on the, the tooth idea, just like two quickly, two prevailing ideas of like why tooth pain is like the most excruciating pain. One, our skin has lots of different sensory neuron types. Some that sense hot, some that sense cold, lots that sense touch, non-painful things. We have that same makeup of neurons that innervate our teeth, which is also very weird. Then you say, well, why do you need itch sensing neurons in your tooth? Why do you need touch innocuous sensing neurons in your tooth? Why do you still have all these same classes? And a thing that's perplexed this field for a long time is that it appears that once they innervate the tooth, they change their function and that the only sensation they signal is pain. So even though they anatomically and molecularly look like touch neurons or itch neurons or temperature neurons, the only output they deliver is pain. And that's a perplexing thing that the field has never been able to solve. The second way I'll answer that 
from some recent work from Fan Wang's lab when she was at Duke, she published a paper a few years ago in Nature Neuroscience, and they show neurons that come from our face, including neurons that innervate our teeth, have a straight and direct and strong connection to areas in the brain that encode for pain. And this may contribute to the heightened sensation that certain facial structures give us with pain, like tooth pain or trigeminal neuralgia, which is also very painful, or even migraine, which is chronic pain that we don't get migraine anywhere else in our bodies except our heads. So there's something about the pain neurons that innervate our facial structures. And it could just be that they have a faster and, and more direct potent input to the areas in the brain that control pain. Is it relevant that some sorts of oral pain are actually we seek as pleasurable, like hot tamales and things like that? I mean, why is it that, that some pain-producing things actually turn out to be pleasurable, especially, it seems to me, in the oral cavity? Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful question. It, it reminds me of a study that came out about a year ago in the journal Neuron. They were looking at itch, okay, which is an aversive stimuli. And in that study, they showed that when you give a mouse this itch compound, this aversive compound, it, it activates aversion circuits in the brain, but it also has a really potent activation of the brain's reward circuitry. Because as you're scratching an itch, you're relieving that itch. It's rewarding. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's nothing better than that. <laughs> so somehow the brain is like toggling between like reward and aversion. There's this tug of war there. Aversive things that give us some reward. Nothing like the burn of a little scotch yeah. as it goes down your, you know. <laughs> Ish, I just want to thank you immensely for doing this with us today and for being so open about all the stuff you don't know. Ish, thank you so much. What, what a great conversation about, about your science. Leslie and Stuart, thank you as well. It's been a, a real pleasure to be here. As you can see, I like to talk. Uh, could have kept going for another few hours. But, uh... <laughs> okay, you'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, Leslie, we just spoke for some time here with one of the smartest people I've ever talked to, who seems to know more about pain than anybody I can think of. And yet what he really is worried about is all the things they still don't know about it. All the things we've thought about it that have turned out to be a little wrong and all the things we haven't yet thought about it. It's remarkable. I totally agree. And I think that the real insight he has is this problem that we can't feel another person's pain. We can't really assess if an animal is in pain. And so this idea of recording really, really, really high speed videos and then just looking at what the animal is doing, that's the major insight where you actually can see how pain is expressed in an animal. I think that that's an amazing advance. Yes, it's remarkable how we've looked for years and years at recordings of people in pain. There are all these psychological things. You go to the doctor's office and there's a pain chart from one to 10 with facial expressions. But then when you really look closely, you see how much is hidden in every little twitch, every little muscle twitch, the squinting of the eyes, for example. It's just remarkable how much still remains hidden to us. And I think it's not possible to treat pain or understand pain if we can't actually measure quantitatively what is actually going on. Even I would say emotional pain, which is something that we touched on a little bit today. Well, to wit the opioid crisis we're all dealing with now, which is some combination of many kinds of pain, and we just don't know how to deal with them. Absolutely. So just a way to completely blunt everything to make all the pain go away. 
Well, we hope to have him back soon to hear some more about what new things he's learned that he doesn't know about pain. (laughs) And folks, that is what science is. Ignorance is a production of Nautilus Magazine. The hosts are Stuart Firestein and Leslie Vossall. This episode was mixed and edited by Tom Veltry, with music by Lenny Williams of Load Bearing Music. John Steele is the executive producer. <laughs>